Welcome to Grid Connections. I'm your host, Chase Drum. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how our electrical grid is becoming the intersection between the next generation of electric transportation, new digital technologies, and grid infrastructure. Join me in exploring these topics with experts and leaders across the grid. Today, we discuss advances in battery technology with Jordan Gisagi, host of The Limiting Factor. Jordan's YouTube channel explores what makes a battery a battery. He wants to know the limiting factor to when batteries will be in cars and everything else everywhere else. Jordan professionally specializes in patent technology but took an active interest in batteries on the side. His channel is a great resource for others interested in learning more and hosts interviews with the leaders in battery technology. In today's episode, we discuss battery technologies, the impact of battery density, and how batteries can help power the grid, along with some of the big players in the battery space today. First off, thanks for having me. Um, I've I've watched a little of of what you've done on AutoLine, and uh, it seemed like it would be a good interview experience. A, A lot of times when people ask me for interviews, I go and check out what interviews they've done before, and I say, hmm, is this, uh, how, how is this person's interview style? And you seem to have a great interview style, so that's a, a compliment back to you. I feel like I need to return the favor after that great introduction. <laughs> um, the way that I got into batteries was, uh, there, there's a number of different channels doing uh, quick hype videos about better batteries, and that, for the most part, uh, I understand how, that's how it is. Batteries is, a, is an exciting new technology, but it didn't seem like anybody was digging any deeper. Uh, and as soon as you get any deeper on it, you immediately get into the research papers that this uh, journalism is based on. And the research papers are absolutely, um, if you don't have a scientific background, it's like looking at a block of concrete. You just don't get anything out of it. So I decided to... Um, take the time and um, dig into this information and just start sharing what I, what I learned. So, so how much of a scientific background uh, do you have? I think Very little. Just, I know that's, that's what I find so fascinating about this is I've seen plenty of people. Uh, I mean, even when I'd be in college, these uh, amazing background PhD professors who should be more than uh, qualified to kind of be presenting on some of these things. And it was, one, I don't even know if they quite knew what they were talking about. They just were trying to do this to get back to their research. Uh, but two, it yeah. just it lacked the, the interest that you clearly have in it and ability mm-hmm. to make it much more consumable for average people. Yeah, I don't, um, a lot of the people who excel in the field, they're brilliant people, but it uses, I think, a completely different part of your brain than actually... Um, it's understanding a system. That's what understanding a battery is. Whereas um, my, I think what I bring to it is I have more, just as much of an interest in people and making sure other people understand this information and making sure I understand it. Because um, there's been a number of times when I ask an expert a question, they'll give me an answer. And I'm like, that makes absolutely no qu- no sense. How about uh, I just start firing back and forth some analogies, and you can let me know what analogy is is the closest. Because in order to bridge the gap between what you know and you don't know, you need some sort of rope to swing between the two, and that's kind of 
the purpose that analogies serve. You, you need to start with the familiar and move to this, this, these abstractions. Yeah, I, I think what it really reminds me of, I believe it was Wired for a while, was taking uh, videos on like uh, Bitcoin, all sorts of really deep, complex uh, topics. But what they would do that was really cool was they would describe it over 10 minutes in 12 different ways. The first would be describing it to a five-year-old. And then by the end of it, it was describing it as if you had a PhD understanding of it. So it was kind of a bit of a uh, just repeated retelling of what it was to get you each time not only a larger understanding of what actually was being described but more importantly just depending on someone's interest level or even background knowledge it gave you a really quick way to describe the power and impact of those technologies and i think that's something that your channel has i don't know if it's intentional or not has been doing an amazing job of um and i, I think that really kind of goes back you're currently kind of doing work in the ip space correct well i was um I've done a little bit of work in the IP space, which kind of helped out with, because when you're doing intellectual property, uh, giving out trademark licenses, things like that, uh, you have to do a lot of due diligence. And that kind of helped out with my background for this. At the moment I'm doing IT work, I'm kind of, uh, to go back and answer your question what my background is in science, I'm completely unqualified <laughs> to be, to be uh, uh, technically to, be uh, doing a video on batteries, basically. Uh, and I think that's another reason why perhaps it lands at the level that people can understand it, because I have to spend hours and hours and hours bringing it down to my base level of scientific understanding, and then I can just share that once I've formed up in, in my head. In terms of um, actual scientific background, I... You know, I took the regular science classes at university and um, I did AP chemistry in high school and that's what I'm working off of. And also, I, I think it might be of interest to people who are not familiar with your channel. You're currently living in Wellington, New Zealand, correct? Yes, and it's, it's raining right now as, as it usually does in Wellington. And uh, so hopefully that's not coming too much uh, coming no, uh, I, I can't hear it at all. Right, and yeah. ironically, I live in Portland, Oregon, and today it's actually sunny. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, go figure. But you're clearly just your accent, I think for most people will realize that are listening to this, you're not from New Zealand. Can you tell a little bit about the, how you got down to there? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> basically, I, I can go pretty far back here. Uh, because I originally came to New Zealand in 2003. Um, but what actually enabled me to come to New Zealand was um, when I went through university, I lived at home with my parents and I got scholarships. And actually my senior year of high school, I went to the local university and the state paid the, the tuition. Because I think it might, like every state might do that. But I took advantage of that. I graduated a year early and with no debt. I was like, okay, everybody else has spent the past three years partying. It's my chance to go actually do something because I don't have any debt. So I uh, said, what's the furthest I can go? And to a, a place that speaks English is safe because uh, I've never lived anywhere but home. So uh, New Zealand seemed like a friendly place. It ticked all the boxes. I came here in 2003, worked in bars and restaurants while I was here. And then eventually I ended up uh, just skipping my flight home. And uh, here I am. 17 years later? 
Yeah. It's, there's never been a reason to leave. It's pretty comfortable. I, I've always, uh, I had the pleasure of going there for about a month and a half back in 2008. I was mostly on the South Island, but my biggest complaint, and this is no complaint at all, is it just remind me a lot of why I live, love living in Oregon. You're always close mm -hmm. to the mountains, but you're also close to the ocean. The people are super friendly and it's pretty easy to get around. And Wellington too is a pretty unique little town with, uh, I, I remember pretty awesome music scene when I was there too. Yeah, I, that's one of the things, working in bars and restaurants in Wellington uh, around the time that I did was, it was a really amazing experience. There was a lot of cool little niche bars that, that they didn't even have signs. You'd just go down an, a dark alley and <laughs> it'd be like a, a dive-in from, uh, what is it, the 20s? Yeah, uh, a speakeasy. Bar. Yeah, speakeasy. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, you felt like you were kind of in a, a secret hidey hole drinking with your <laughs> friends in the dark. And it was just, it was pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, now that uh, the listeners might know a little bit about your backstory, you want to share with us what you're working on right now for the channel? Yes. Graphene. Um, <laughs> I, there's start? a billion graphene, graphene videos out there, not to knock them, but all of them are, go throughout the same way. Here's a piece of type tape. Here's a piece of graphene. And if you unstick the tape several times, it eventually forms a single layer of graphene. Then they go and talk about all the amazing qualities of graphene and what products we might see it in. And then it doesn't really tell you, all right, what's, um, how does this get commercialized? Exactly, and I, I think that's one of the things I always found frustrating was it was always kind of like the fuel cells discussion. Yeah. Like, here's all the cool things it can do, but it'll do in 10 years. Yeah. Well, back they to you, it's like, yeah. it goes, it's yeah. like okay, well, <laughs> I'll check back in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they might not even say that the, the way right. that they're worded, it makes you think that, okay, Ooh, we're going to be getting this soon. We're, you know, we're entering the future tomorrow. But um, so what I had to do is do a deep dive into graphene. And luckily now that the channel's getting big enough. I actually had a few CEOs of graphene companies that I was able to talk to oh, wow. and get some real industry knowledge about um, where this is all headed. So uh, in this video, it's going to be called a uh, graphene masterclass where I go through uh, the two major types of creating graphene, which is bottom up, that's building it atom by atom, and top down, which is taking a piece of graphite and uh, blaking, breaking it apart layer, layer by layer, exfoliating it, just like you might exfoliate your skin. And um, the bottom up method, that's a decade away. It's going to be a while before we have these perfect, large, pristine sheets of graphene. Uh, but the top-down method where you break apart graphite, that's already kicking into production. And even though it creates these tiny little flakes that are microscopic, those flakes are super useful. And even if you add 1% of that graphene material to uh, concrete or epoxies, things like that, it imparts the graphene qualities to that material. And um, even within that flake, there's different grades of flake, um, different sizes of flake, different numbers of flakes. So, it's very much like uh, steel, where you have stainless steel, you have uh, wrought iron, etc. Well, and, and I, whole, I, yeah, yeah, there's all sorts of different things that you can do with it. And I, I think, in my experience, that's usually where they kind of say the hype is ten years away. Uh, there's, there's clearly a lot. If people don't know, a, a big part of the interest is around its possible energy density and how you can use it in those ways. And I guess I'm assuming that's how you came across, uh, or why you started researching it for your channel so much lately. Yeah, well, there's, well, I was originally planning on uh, not doing a graphene video for a long time because it seems like it's, you know, it's at least, 
it's going to be two or three years before these companies kick into large-scale production. It's going to be the late 2020s until you start seeing it in like lots and lots of different products. So it's still a ways away. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to understand anodes better. In order to understand an anode, which is made of graphite, you have to understand the very base materials that make up the anode. And that's graphite. And what's graphite made of? Graphene, just millions of sheets of graphene. And I, I think uh, just one thing to note on top of that is for people who might not be familiar, I think a lot of people focus, I mean, there's a big part of it is the chemistry of the batteries today, but at the, the biggest thing in the interim really is around what, how to better unlock the power of the anodes and the cathodes in the battery. As Those are kind of really the big parts that people don't realize is what's holding yeah. back further things. The battery itself obviously is what gets a lot of attention, but if you can really figure out the cathode part of it, uh, you can start doing some pretty wild things with it. Absolutely. And I think this is underappreciated that by the approach that, for instance, Jeff Don is taking, where he's looking at the efficiency of the overall yeah. battery as a system, um, by looking at where a battery is breaking down, you're not only extending the battery's life and making the most of the materials in the battery, you're able to push further up against the theoretical limits of that battery without even having to go to new materials. It's kind of like what we've done with uh, silicon wafers and computer chips over the past, oh, 40 years. Everybody says, oh, five years from now, we're going to have to switch to a different material. But we, we keep finding more and more ways to get more out of silicon. And I think the same is true with the uh, the version of lithium ion that we're using today, I think it still has a good 10 years. Oh, definitely. And I think really where this plays into is the idea that even with today's technology, the bigger thing usually is charging speeds. And like you were saying, how do you make that last over a longer time? And if you can, the best analogy I've always kind of used is like, imagine there's this great warehouse, maybe whether it's a party or there's a bunch of product inside that you're trying to get to take to your own company but there's maybe a small, like, let's imagine it's a hundred thousand square feet. And, but the only door to get into it is like a normal door to go to like a restroom or just go inside of a house. It's not really convenient to pull a big semi up to, to get all sorts of stuff out much quicker. You're really trying to force a lot of current, a lot of product through this very small um, kind of venue. And that's one of the challenges that the anode has faced is really trying to, how do you kind of buffer that up, increase its uh, through uh, output, but also to really make sure that it has a, a longer lifetime as well and make mm. what you have inside more effective. Because even if you start getting to these higher density uh, batteries, it doesn't really make a difference if you don't have the right uh, anode and cathode attached with it. Yeah, and there's no sense having uh, a 50-gallon lemonade if all of you has is, have, a, have is a little straw. So. Okay, so yeah, exactly. And this is the, these are the kind of analogies that your channel does so well, and you just summed up in one sentence better than I can do the last minute. But no, that, that, that's amazing. And I, I think, what are some of the things that really stood out to you, uh, kind of doing this research and you're excited to share? Um. On anodes, I feel like in order to get the entire story across about anodes, I have to do a video on the entire battery at some point. Um, it's a work in progress. I kind of have to start at these base building blocks. Yeah. And as I'm building these bases, I can, I can work up to something for people. I've kind of had to do things out of order because of battery 
uh, investor day that's coming up for Tesla. I would have liked, uh, you'll notice in my channel that I started with a video on Shirley Mung and Jeff Don. What I wanted to do at the very beginning was just start with, all right, what are all the primary components of a batteries? What's batteries 101, et cetera, and then build up from there into more complex ideas. But I've, I've had to do everything in reverse. <laughs> but I, do, I have noticed all the battery videos that I've seen online are wrong. I haven't seen one of them that's actually correct. And I, they always confuse me when I was watching this. Like, um, you know, like a movie or something, all of a sudden there's deus ex machina where something comes in and um, uh, there's a little bit of hand waving. It just works. Just trust us, it works. Yeah. And it was always when I watched these battery, battery videos, just like something is missing here. I, I don't understand this because it's, it's not quite logical. For instance, these battery videos always show on the cathode side, when you're charging, the electron and the ion split, and then they go to the other side of the battery, and then they rejoin, and a one-to-one -one ratio. But electrons, electrons can move as fast as they want. Like, what is it? Um, not the speed of light, but uh, pretty, pretty damn much. fast. Yeah. Whereas ions, they just, they, they move really slowly. So it's not a one-to-one -one combination. Right. What happens is you have uh, the ions released into solution on this side, and the electron bounces over real quick. And uh, that electron actually grabs an ion from the electrolyte solution. It pulls it out. And what happens is this concentration gradient forms across the battery, where uh, over here it's really low concentration, and here, here it's really high. And that concentration gradient slowly makes its way across the battery as it charges and discharges. I probably got too deep into that. But no, but I, I, I think that's, you're, you're totally right, because uh, there, there's definitely a value that uh, to be served with kind of having these just really quick descriptions of what the the value is. But if you really want to start digging into why that actually works, you start seeing like, oh, that's not actually true. That's just an easy demographic, like easy uh, demo or kind of easy graphic to really explain it and get on to some other thing you might be talking about. But if you truly want to know like what is like holding back the further research in these parts of batteries or what is making... Like a lot of people in the space for the longest time, like, oh, we'll, we'll get to. I mean, we, we, we can manufacture uh, regular cars at a large scale. We build millions of engines a year. We'll just change it to batteries. It's not that different. And that is kind of one of the things where it's like, yeah, there's something to be said to have that level of global manufacturing capacity. But it's saying that you're, it's like saying that what your product has been all these years is apples. People know apples. Those were great but you're going to start building planes. Mm. It's like, it's a little bit different. And yeah. the, the, the resources required and the scale to do it starts changing just completely. Yeah. This, is, this conversation is doing a lot for me because just giving you that explanation has, um, it's made me, one question I had a few weeks ago that remained unanswered in my brain was, uh, why is a certain amount of electrolyte required? And it just dawned on me that, oh, you need X amount of electrolyte in order to have enough uh, ions to supply to the anode side. So I've kind of, I've, uh, over the course of this conversation, I just answered a question for myself, I, myself, I think. I, I have to go look into that. And that's kind of another thing that happens when I'm researching, understanding the different components. So I go, oh, that thing I learned three weeks ago that didn't seem like it mattered to me, now all of a sudden it really makes sense. Um, because they're always trying to reduce the amount of electrolyte you put in batteries because that'll reduce the weight. Right. And, um, well, and that's one of the, yeah. that's one of the things I've found really interesting too, is because 
there's no shortage of like news outlets they're kind of breaking down obviously there's the graphing and the things that are 10 years out but there's there's still been actually like like you said jeff don there's a lot of people who are doing some really great stuff in the space but without the context if you just read like the byline it's like this x improvement to anode with xyz uh compound and materials you're like okay what what was it before how, how does this play into the bigger things and what your channel does a really great job of is kind of layering that on top of each other. And even, even if someone needs to see like not all of the detail, it can be pretty clear why this makes, I, I think the, the real or the original time I came across your channel um, and I was kind of blown away was kind of when you were describing how big of a deal the tablet design mm. that Tesla had kind of patented for their batteries. Cause that starts unlocking, not just, manufacturing advantages it's really about actually reducing resistance and possibly therefore increasing uh, longevity and also charging uh, capacity and time or decreasing the time it takes to charge the batteries yeah that was um the day that patent came out i got really excited and i did that <laughs> toilet paper video <laughs> yeah and I, I think that's that's what i was also impressed with was just the kind of the macgyver impromptu nature of <laughs> the uh the demo video but i was like oh okay one i'm jealous because back then i think that was kind of peak COVID, and you had toilet paper mm -hmm. uh but two, it also <laughs> kind of helped it was a really it because all these there were all sorts of news stories coming out and it didn't really make sense what the big deal was uh, but that visual made it pretty clear um it, go ahead oh no uh what, what were you gonna say i was gonna say that you made a good point at the beginning of the video that there's a lot of people who explain things and they do such a poor job of explaining it. You think, does this person really understand it? And I think that's a lot, a lot of time, times that's the case. And I, even more to that point, I think a lot of times people who uh, do actually understand this stuff better, but they don't share it because uh, to them, it's going down a rabbit hole that eventually you get to a point where they have to say, I don't know. And people who see themselves as, as, as an expert, they hate to say, I don't know, but the people I, that go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. I think the other thing too, is there's a lot of people who right or wrong, especially in academia are just put into positions where they have to teach all sorts of subjects mm. and they, they realize the value in that. But especially when you're dealing with um, a lot of teachers who are really more full-time researchers, 90% of the stuff they have to talk just to get the teaching hours isn't what they're interested or passionate about. Uh, and that unfortunately kind of comes across in these classes where they just start reading through the books. And then I've also, uh, in my own experience, met people who are insanely uh, talented and incredibly smart, but they're not always the most um, communicative or have those kinds of abilities. So you kind of have to pull it with them or you really have to have that kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, one -on -one relationship with them so they're more open to kind of conversing with you and get that. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. I, I think, uh, I've, I've faced it in my own experience, but, um, just like through whether that be professional and work or even through college. And then it's, it's always trying to find where do you go th for these answers? And as crazy as it sounds, I mean, there's a lot of great content from the MITs and the Stanford's of the world. It is more and more kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go YouTube this. Or like just go search for it and pretty quickly you can kind of get the six minute synopsis or find that one answer that may have been that gap between the greater picture that you're trying to establish and you get it and once again the value to me what i found so interesting about that is 
it's the people who are teaching it are like you. They're passionate about the subject matter. So mm -hmm. they really give it their all to get that across. Yeah, I've certainly, I wouldn't, uh, well, there's that saying, you stand on the shoulders of giants. And most certainly I do, because this <laughs> channel wouldn't be anywhere without all the other people who um, have created videos on obscure topics that, you know, they only get like a thousand views, but it's something that's fundamental to understanding some aspect of batteries or something I've tried to understand. Like, what was it? Sheet resistance. There's a guy who uh, did a, a video on sheet resistance. Do you know what sheet resistance is? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Okay, sheet resistance is uh, basically when you have um, a material, uh, the longer it gets, the more resistance there is um, between two points. Yeah. Um, the wider it gets, the less resistance there is between two points. Now, what happens if you have a, a sheet of material that's the same thickness, but it's square, perfectly square? So the resistance uh, increase and decrease are happening at the same time. So if you have a, a piece of material that's this big, as long as it's the same thickness, it's the same resistance as a material that's the size of a football field. And that was, yeah. oh, wow. Um, I wouldn't have been able to understand the uh, tabless electro design without that video. Gotcha. No, that, that's, I guess, you know, and once again, it's kind of understanding on that level because I kind of always knew that thing about resistance that there are kind of variables where it doesn't change, but that, that's a perfect way to sum it up. Like you could have something that's the size of a, a metal, the size of like maybe a, a gum wrapper, but then you take that out to a football field. That's sort of, that's exactly it, where it's these kinds of conversations and like discussions that really start kind of thinking like, okay, what does that mean? And especially when it gets to uh, like batteries, like, okay, is this something that you could use for a, uh, a car or is this something you could also use for like utility scale charging and all sorts of different larger uh, kind of storage of energies uh, and I, I think that would be kind of a, a good thing to look at when you start looking at like the barriers and some of the misperceptions people face with batteries to like greater production levels is there anything that you've kind of come across in your research that has been pretty more common that when you start looking at it is like actually no that's that's not really the big thing holding it back People bring up lithium a lot, and I don't see that. I mean, if you look at lithium on the, the, the periodic table, it's, I think, three on the periodic table. Yeah. And basically, the lower you are on the periodic table, the more common that element is in the universe, uh, for the most part. I'm sure there's some, a lot of variation there somewhere, but there's tons of lithium out there. It's just a matter of building the mines to extract it. So well, I, I do... Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things about lithium too, is like, cause that's exactly what people um, refer to in hydrogen all the time. Like, yeah, it's the most abundant uh, element in the universe, but it's almost attached to something. And that's the thing kind of people forget is there's, there's kind of two parts of that. It's not only an abundancy, but you also need like, okay, how easily can this be extracted? And lithium by no means is perfect, but actually when it comes to the extraction process, it's still a lot easier uh, due to like same with silicon, like, you can find it in a pretty large scale quantities uh, and then refine it fairly easily. And you can do the same with hydrogen, but not only do you have to use a lot of energy to do that, then you have to figure out all sorts of crazy ways to store it. And I, I think that's what's been so interesting about the lithium field is there's really, people keep saying, oh, sulfur, air batteries, yada, yada, yada. Once again, all these things are five to 10 years out. Um, 
really the underlying technology for the battery itself. I, would I say no to like a battery tomorrow that gives cars 500 miles of range? No. But uh, to do that at like something that's actually scale or affordable, yeah, you start, you kind of need to start doing these like reverse engineering these uh, elements by going with lithium or something else that's not only uh, easy to get a hold of, but something that is actually easy to then refine it and produce it at scale. Yeah. Uh, you're, uh, you're speaking my language there because that's <laughs> one of the, one of the things I want to resolve. Uh, one thing I've realized since I've gotten in the battery space, I realized why a lot of battery researchers just don't enter the public forum because all of a sudden you get a thousand messages about graphene or solid state and all these other things, which are, Oh man, I would love to have um, these amazing batteries tomorrow. Um, but in order to communicate somebody um, realistically what the process is for bringing a product like that to market, it takes a lot of in-depth understanding. And um, I'll be doing a series of videos on that. All right, what exactly does it take to bring a battery to market? And how can you develop your BS detector so you can instantly look at an article and go, okay, this we aren't going to see this anytime soon because uh, it's never done... A, it's never done long-term cycling. B, it uh, hasn't gone through any stress tests or they haven't done the nail test where they punctured to see how explosive it is. Things like that. There's, they have to test thousands and thousands of batteries to protect themselves as a company and make sure that they're not putting out products that uh, can hurt people and also to make sure they're putting out products that you know, do what they say they can and are cheaper and better than what they did you know, last year. When I, I think batteries, like for automotive, especially automotive and even maybe the larger kind of science realm is kind of like probably become the number one clickbait sort of like if you can involve breakthrough battery, yada, yada, yada. I feel like I'm seeing every popular mechanic spammy sort of ad saying, oh, check this out. And then once you actually click on it, there's 12,000 ads and the actual chance of it coming to markets, maybe zero. Like it's, it's usually pretty far out and a lot of just things that are missing. Uh, if, I mean, and I, I think that's great to hear that you're doing something on kind of that BS meter because I, I think that would help a lot of people. I, I think I might have to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that, that's good for a thumbnail, BS meter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to talk about a clickbait title, I mean, a clickbait uh, kind of discussion, you might as well have a clickbait title. But I mean, it, it is mm -hmm. to the point and people get it, a BSometer, right? You heard it here yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I probably have, I don't know, at least five to six months of videos lined up wow. in my head, just covering off the, the graphene and anode materials and the companies that I've looked into related to those materials. Um, that's at least two months. And I could stretch that out even further. And then in terms of going into detail on how about that's, in order to do the battery video right, how a battery works, that one's probably going to take a month to, to get that right because I want to hire an animator and make it something really special. Kind of like, have you seen uh, Ray Dalio's? Do you know who yeah. Ray Dalio is? He did How the yeah. Economic Machine Works. Uh, I want to do one like that where it's like, it's the reference material for how a battery works. Gotcha. No, that, that'd be great. And I, I think the way you've been approaching it really does help break that understanding of what it is down for people. 
Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I think even just in the conversations I've had, there's a lot of very smart people who just unfortunately just haven't had access to either the right content or, um, I mean, I, I think that's what's also really fascinating about this space is, and just the grid and EVs and everything in general is, there's a lot of kind of ideas that get people's attention. It's like, oh, this will be the thing that solves it all, but it's five to 10 years out. However, what you look at what is here now and what has been coming and like what is like actually hitting the markets and people can purchase or use in their day-to-day lives is evolving amazingly quickly. I, I don't know if it's still the same, but it used to be like lithium ion density was improving by, I think like 8% a year, maybe even more now. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a few percentage a year that it's improving, but you make a very good point, which is, um, in my view, currently, uh, with the batteries that'll be coming out here in the next couple of years, we're already at the point where the technology is good enough to change the face of society. And anything we get beyond this is, uh, moves us into other spaces, such as uh, electric, electric jets, etc., and gives you, gives you more range. It's, um, yeah, it's kind of like cell phones around... I don't know, 2009, 2010, um, those cell phones work just fine. They're pretty much the same thing that we basically have now. But between about 2010 and 2015, you got longer battery battery life, better quality materials, uh, faster processing, overall just a, a better experience. And that's the way I see it panning out for the next five to 10 years. Yeah, it was, it was kind of the iPhone proved that this new version of it is possible. And then quickly after that, you did have the Samsungs of the world and everyone else kind of bringing their own version of it to market. It's kind of like, I think it was the story of the four minute mile. Everyone thought it was impossible. And then once they saw someone do it within the year, there's like four other people that did it. Yeah. Um, and so with all these things that, I mean, we are even seeing on the market, where where do you think in like the next couple of years, where do you see batteries headed? Is it faster charging versus actually greater density is kind of where the current tech is headed? This is where the, the research that Jeff, Jeff Don is doing is, uh, once again, I, I bring him up so much, but what he's doing is, is so valuable, is by removing the inefficiencies in the battery cell, you actually increase the spider chart in about every different direction. You can increase the voltage, increase the, the charging speed, um, increase the cycle life, increase and the just, energy. And just to explain, for people who don't know what a spider chart is, yeah. uh, it, it's similar, it, it's similar to how like there's an X, Y, and axis for most graphs. What's really cool about a spider graph, and I, I think what you do see all the time now, especially for batteries, is it starts taking multiple things and not just uh, charge times, but energy density, um, usability, life scale. And so it is, it is wild how you're seeing this evolution of how instead of it being kind of like an XY graph going up and down, it's essentially you want to see that circle get bigger and bigger and bigger because it starts touching more and more of these points. I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. So uh, thanks for explaining what a spider chart is. I'm starting to get to the point now where uh, sometimes I use words and I'm so used to using that I don't realize I have to slow it down a little bit. And literally the only reason I, I interrupted you because you're, you're going on the right tangent there was I literally had to explain it. I was doing the same thing. I, I didn't realize how, um, yeah, it's so easy to kind of slip into that vernacular that most people might not know. Yeah, so the, 
the spider chart, what he's doing, it, it slightly improves it in all different areas. You, you get an overall better battery when you get rid of the junk out of the battery that shouldn't belong, should have never been in the battery in the first place. Um, but, you know, only now, we're only just now understanding batteries well enough to understand um, that we're doing some things completely wrong. And uh, we, we're, the way we were building batteries was built on flawed assumptions, like the assumption that cobalt is necessary for um, a stable battery. Now, there is some truth to it, but it's more complex than that. And there's ways around it to make a cobalt-free battery. So in terms of um, the big trends I see in batteries over the, the next few years, a lot of it has to do with cycle life, um, going from, say, one to 2,000 cycles up to four, five, 6,000 cycles, um, increasing the energy density by increasing the voltage. Um, and all that's achieved by tweaking the electrolyte solution just a little bit and using what's called a single crystal cathode, which has been a buzzword lately. When, when it first started hitting the news, everybody thought it meant solid state, like this, yeah. it's this giant crystal in the cathode. But it's really, it, it just basically means that rather than using clumps of crystals in your cathode, you're using individual crystals. Um, that are, that are separated from each other. It's more of a consistent product versus, yeah. Exactly. It doesn't suffer, uh, it doesn't break apart as much. So uh, that'll be the trend. Uh, we need to get single crystal cathodes that scaled up and you'll start, start seeing that go into pretty much all batteries is my assumption. Now, in terms of charge rate versus energy density versus cost. The two things that they focus on most is, or three would be first is uh, cost. They wanna get those costs down to get this into more products. Um, two is energy density. Uh, so it, it kind of goes, goes into hand with the, the cost thing because if you can use the same materials yet make your battery more energy dense, with those materials, you're using less material, which lowers the cost. Those two kind of feed off of each other if you get it right. The third one I would say is, is charging speed. And a lot of people are frustrated that charging speed is lower down on the list. But I think people, um, one thing that helps to keep in mind is as your battery gets larger, you get more of that initial boost period where uh, you get a longer period of time where the battery is able to take in a lot more electrons and take in a high current load. So by increasing the battery size, it does help with charging speed. And on top of that, it increases your range. So it's not as good as charging speed that some people want, but a larger battery that can charge more quickly for longer to me is just about as good, but it is on, I think it is in their top three. But I think that is really interesting to bring that because the charging speed goes back to what uh, I, one of the conversations I had on the other podcast recently with Wade and Matt Teske, where we were kind of talking about like, once you hit that 150 kilowatt charge rate, that actually works pretty well, especially if you've got like a smaller car. Uh, and then once you hit 250 to 300, I mean, 250, especially you start, the big thing I think for a lot of people is the misperception around what that actually means and what, and that's one of the things that Chargeway is working on is it's really hard for the average person. I mean, you and I understand the difference between kilowatts, but if you talk to anyone that drives a, a 
internal combustion car, they know regular premium and diesel. What's 150 kilowatt versus 161 kilowatt? That starts getting a little more complex. And so I think it's a little bit of the old adage where if you'd ask someone who had um, never driven a car, they just knew horses, and you ask them, how do you make a better product? They say, hey, more hay, uh, eats less hay, goes faster, and poops less. And then you would never have the Model T. It's that kind of, I think, mindset. Whereas once you start kind of, and I don't, like I said, don't get me wrong, it definitely open to that higher charge rate where possible, but it is impressive what is capable today. And what I, th I think to me, the real big thing is honestly the cost and then just longevity of it. I think you raise a really good point. It's, I, I would be interested to know the people who are making that comment on uh, most of my videos, whether they are currently EV, EV owners or whether they're prospective EV, owner, EV owners. Totally. That's something I've never thought of because I imagine it's the people who don't have EVs who are concerned about being able to charge their battery up in five minutes and don't realize that you can plug it in every night and right. uh, you know, have a fully charged car. So I, I think the, and it's, it's definitely a valid concern in a lot of places is just the actual having the chargers. Uh, but you start looking at the US, I think there's now 30,000. Uh, and it, it's obviously like Southeast Asia, I know is still a part of the world that is kind of slower to it, but like Europe, North America, um, but I like, even like you look at West and East coasts of Australia, they even now have some, uh, charging infrastructure going in. I don't think there's something connecting the East and West yet of Australia. I don't know other than maybe the trucking industry would be interested in that. And once again, when you have like Hawaii or New Zealand, these smaller islands, it's also kind of, uh, kind of a moot point. Cause you're no longer doing is, I mean, it still takes, it, it's not like you can go straight place to place. And I, I know that it can take a little bit longer to get around the island versus what it sounds like it should. But once again, the actual distance really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, New Zealand, it's, uh, I think they had like three supercharger stations for a while. And that's all you really need because, oh, totally. I mean, Auckland to Wellington is probably the most common car trip. And that's, I don't know. I forget how many miles. I'm used to thinking in terms of kilometers, and I think it's like 500 kilometers, okay. which is about 300 miles. So you could just about make it with just, you know, one stop along somewhere. But um, I'm surprised how good the support in New Zealand is for Tesla because I think now they have like maybe five or six supercharging stations. So oh, wow. I mean, that's enough for the entire country. Right, right. It's such a small place. They do need more. That's I say that jokingly, but it just doesn't need that much. And they have a few service centers now. So I'd be, I'd feel comfortable getting a Tesla here in New Zealand now. Oh, totally. And I, I think it's, it's once again, like for T Tesla kind of made it super easy. And that, that's what we kind of talk about in that other conversation where it's like, you take that regular versus premium gas example with Tesla, it's either supercharge or destination charge. Um, and you're, you're starting to see like Electrify America, I think Ionity and the three different, like there's Electrify America, Electrify Canada, and Ionity, I believe is the one, where they're essentially just spin outs of the diesel gate uh, funding to put these in, uh, high speed chargers in place. And so there are third party ones that are catching up to it. It's just sometimes the visibility or even knowing it's there. Um, but most of those, once again, are 150 kilowatt or faster. And so I think for a lot of people, it's a misperception that is maybe not warranted or not as bad as people thought. And once again, maybe five years ago, it was probably warranted outside of a Tesla. Now it's really starting to catch up in a lot of countries and a lot of comments. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm totally on board. It's something I, I haven't thought a lot about. I'm so focused on the chemistry that uh, sometimes I neglect the day-to-day usage, especially since I don't have a Tesla myself. I live in central Wellington, so everything's walkable. Right. But um, yeah, I, it's another factor is how many of these people have used the V3 supercharger. Most of them haven't. So oh, totally. I think maybe before I, yeah. people um, request faster charging, they need to um, experience V3 supercharging, which looks pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I think really once you get to 250, especially when you, and that's, there's, there's two kind of variables about this. And once again, it's something you and I and a lot of people who might listen to this would get versus uh, just kind of the casual listener. There's, there's kind of two parts of this or someone who might have a casual interest in it is not only the charging speed, but the actual size of the pack and the efficiency of the car. So like, I think that's really where uh, Tesla and then uh, Hyundai have really stepped have really stood out is by having really efficient cars with each minute of charging, you're actually adding that many more miles to the battery pack. And it's great to see you've got like GM Ford and all these companies Rivian who are coming out, but they're talking about battery packs that are hundred, 120 kilowatt and beyond. And that's why they're all justifying kind of this 350 kilowatt charging rate. Uh, and you kind of do need it to get the right speeds, but even then you start running into the issue of actually just being able to produce those batteries at scale with the actual cells and the cost of that pack breakdown versus the <laughs> worrying about just the actual cost of the car or what the longevity of those batteries are when you have to charge that many at that high voltage that many times. Mm. I mean, for you, I, I guess it's kind of funny being in New Zealand and talking about um, battery technology and you don't have a car there you look at islands who are starting to move towards like grid storage uh, for renewables with what you've been looking at in your kind of research for batteries. Are you seeing any differences that stand out in the battery research for renewables uh, for like grid storage versus the car usage or anything like that that might stand out to you in particular? Um, This is something I've actually only just started looking into the past couple of days because generally what I do if if there's a preeminent researcher who says this technology is 10 years away, I go, okay, I'm going to put that at the bottom of my stack. But um, I've had a few spare moments the past few days. So I started looking into, for instance, sodium ion batteries and um, flow batteries, things like that. I'm, I'm interested to see how that pans out because lithium batteries are making improvements so rapidly that I don't know if it's giving um, these other technologies, uh, for lack of a better turn of phrase, the oxygen to, um, you know, develop and be used. Um, well, it's I, I, interesting. I was going to say it's interesting to bring up flow batteries because that's what I've always found is, especially when you get to the grid. There's a couple of companies who are trying to do it for like residential energy backup. And it's still, it's getting closer, but still from what I've heard, not the same cost competitive to like a Powerwall or some other product uh, that's lithium based. But once you start getting the utility stuff and like the size and location of where you're trying to put the battery, that's where I think flow uh, style batteries really stand out because you no longer have the size constraints. So you can have that lower density and really it just becomes the higher um, like kind of rate of which you, the longevity of the battery versus like trying to get in someone's garage. It's going to be the size of someone's garage 
if not the whole house usually. Absolutely. And this yeah. is, and along with that comes maintenance. Um, oh, exactly. Like if you look at like these flow batteries, I think they have pumps and things like that, that, that need to be maintained in order to make it viable. You need, I don't see it being useful for, for home backup because I mean, right. at that point, if you're going to be looking after maintenance and things like that, you may as well get like a, a Generac generator that runs off natural gas or something like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I think it's, it's always interesting to see like what technologies are starting to uh, try new markets. And that's kind of the beauty of the lithium ion thing, especially compared to traditional generators and why they are a better product is you just don't have to deal with that upkeep. You don't have to make sure that there's gas in it. You don't have to, if you have like a traditional lead acid battery system, you don't have to make sure they have water and uh, different upkeep items. However, when you get to like, like look at peaker plants, for example, the amount of upkeep and stuff that goes with that starts getting into an area where actually flow batteries are way easier to manage. And the footprint that something like that has, I, I think there's a pretty good case to be made for a flow battery at that scale. I agree. Because yeah. once you're dealing with something, because um, at least in my mind, the amount of maintenance required for a home scale system is probably about the same amount of maintenance that would be required for something um, that's much, much larger, something that could power a city. Right. Uh, because you just, you know, um, if you need to replace a piece of the pump intermittently, et cetera, I mean, it becomes a much small, smaller proportion of the cost as that thing grows. And I do see these flow batteries and um, sodium batteries making sense at some point and for some applications. But for to me, the next five to 10 years belongs to lithium ion intercalation batteries. And we'll, we'll see what comes after that. Gotcha. And I, I think when we... I think when most people hear about lithium ion, uh, there's a few big players in the space. Probably Tesla does get the most articles about kind of the gigafactory that they have building and other ones they're looking around the world for battery production. But I, I've been impressed with some of the research that you share on your channel around Samsung and others. And now Tesla is working with others outside of Panasonic, but are there any kind of players in the space outside of Tesla that you've been really impressed by or really stand out to you? I think uh, I, I feel like I need to look into all these companies because I, I feel like they're all underappreciated. Tesla takes the limelight because of these awesome products that they create. But in terms of battery manufacturing, they are, uh, they're not any further ahead than anybody else. In fact, there's probably other companies that in certain ways are more advanced right now. We'll see what that comes out on battery investor day. But I mean, CATL, LG Chem, um, and Panasonic, these are all tier one suppliers right. that are uh, basically, they're all competitive with each other. And all of them have tricks up their sleeves. And it's been interesting to see the past few weeks, CATL, and I think it's Asphalt, um, reveal that they have a cobalt-free battery. And that was a curveball for me because I thought the energy density should be higher, but then I realized, hey, they could actually be using a different type of chemistry than LG Chem and Tesla will, will be using. There's something called lithium nickel manganese oxide, which is uh, a cobalt-free material, 
And it's something that I thought Tesla might use until I realized it was lower energy density. Then I was like, ah, I think they're going to go something with, with something higher energy density. And on top, lithium nickel manganese oxide, you have to run it at a really high voltage, which need, means you need more expensive electrolytes. But what I didn't think of is, well, what if you run this battery at a lower voltage and just use a standard electrolyte solution in it? it would probably put it about the energy densities that they're looking at. It'd be cheap, it would be cobalt free, it would be a nice mix. It would be somewhere in between the lithium iron phosphate, which is super cheap, readily available right. materials, and the nickel manganese cobalt, which is this really uh, high-end material. It would, it would hit the sweet spot right between those. Still good energy density, but cheap as well. And I, I think from what I've heard as well, that it has a pretty good lifespan that you don't have to worry about the degradation issues too much either with that. And yeah. I think that what, what plays into that too is it might not be what they put in like the longest range batteries, but they still sell quite a few of their like, I think at the standard range and count those entry ones. And as long as you can kind of fit in that same, even if it has a lower energy density, I think that's where you could definitely have a pretty good opportunity to put in that same kind of tray size. Uh, mm -hmm. If you can really start lowering the cost. I know that's been the big thing for a lot of automakers in China with the uh, subsidies that they're kind of starting to tweak to really, I mean, I, I think it's well-intentioned, just they're trying to pull it back a little bit, but really put the focus on making uh, cars that are pretty uh, cost-effective for a lot of people to purchase. Exactly. And I think that's what, where China is really doing an amazing job. They're not going with the most flash technology that they can, the coolest technology with the highest numbers. They're going with, all right, what's cheap and what can we make a lot of? And um, what's underappreciated is companies like BYD have had more of a positive impact on CO2 emissions than Tesla's had because they've cranked out so many batteries and they're putting those batteries into vehicles that are typically extremely polluting like buses, et cetera. And of course, those buses help take extra cars off the road. So it's a, it's a compounding effect. So um, BYD, CATL, these Chinese companies are underappreciated. People are, are all worried about Tesla stealing technology or Chinese companies stealing technology from Tesla. I don't think they have to worry about that. Tesla, I think most of the Chinese companies are actually in certain ways ahead of Tesla, like sell pack technology, for instance. Well, and that's one of the areas where Tesla does steal all of the, a lot of the news headlines is because they're kind of in two areas. They have the, obviously the battery production because they're so vertically integrated, but then they're, they've got the sexy, I mean, no one, no one's going to be like the average person isn't going to be reading some article about BYD's latest battery. They will probably be reading car and driver about Tesla's new car and therefore learn about the batteries that they're making. Uh, with that greater exposure, do you think there's any other companies like VW or GM that are doing some really interesting things or starting to make the steps into the right space for making electric vehicles more common? VW seems to be headed in the right direction if they can get that software sorted out. Yeah. You mentioned, was it uh, Hyundai? Yeah, Hyundai. You mentioned before? Yeah. They seem to, for a while, they seem to have be, been headed in the right direction. But it seems like the German automakers, the European automakers are the ones that are really realizing that they need to change their tune. They need to completely retool an entire industry. And there's a political motivation there as well. The politicians realize 
that the German auto industry pretty much is, you know, the backbone of industry in Germany. Even if VW and these companies fail and they go bankrupt, I believe the government's going to be there to pick up the pieces. So no matter what happens, I see the European automakers as uh, a close second. I'm not including China in that. I mean, I think they're already in the lead and Tesla would be number two in terms of the actual number of getting, num getting vehicles on the road. But the, in terms of the, the companies that people would be interested in, I think VW. And the one that has particular interest for me is Remac. They don't get enough love. That's a fascinating company. They're doing everything first principles from the ground up. And on a weekly basis, they do uh, a YouTube chat slash channel with the CEO. And he walks you through some of the engineering that they're doing and talks about how they're making their products. No, that, that's actually a great point. Like Mate and what they're doing right now is like very impressive. I think for a long time, it seemed like they were getting some news because they were the European Tesla. And it, it seems, I think there's been a bit of a pivot to they've moved from being so much a car manufacturers to now they're really the OEM supplier working behind the scenes to really help a lot of these European car makers with their, I mean, they, in a lot of ways, they're starting to play the role that like LG played for the actual powertrain development that they're doing for GM and other car manufacturers. Rimax doing quite a bit of that for a lot of the higher end uh, performance cars, along with starting, it sounds like to get into even, uh, I believe maybe work with some of the Korean and other kind of more uh, higher production volume car manufacturers as well. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't even realize until a couple of weeks ago. Monte was walking around the factory floor saying, all right, this goes into a Koenigsegg, this goes yeah. for X vehicle or Y vehicle. I'm like, oh, wow, this company's got its fingers in a lot of pies. It's one to watch. Yeah, I think it, it is kind of interesting because you look like, at least domestically for me, in North America, you've got like Rivian's probably kind of the up and coming one that's got a lot of interest for having maybe more of a backing in some regards to the traditional automakers being more based in the Midwest. A lot of people they're bringing over from Ford and GM into the space. But when you actually look at who's making that big impact, I would agree with you. Like for the longest time, Rimac has been kind of under the radar and some of the technology that they have brought to market, I believe it was called the concept one, their high performance car. Uh, probably it's most pro and con was it was on that top gear episode where it caught it crashed. And I think that kind of has since then, unfortunately, obviously it was for entertainment purposes versus like being something of like saying anything about the car. But I think that's it probably, I don't know if it's done more good or bad for them from a car production standpoint, but it's definitely put them on uh, a lot of OEM and manufacturers radars for like a supplier to get that engineering and experience in the realm that really matters as they start making this change. Well, I suppose it's better to be notorious than unknown. Yeah, yeah no, that's <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I often forget about Rivian because they have, a, to me, they're, they have the most promise in North America besides totally. Tesla, but they, they, that they haven't delivered anything yet. Remac is one of the few companies that have delivered things. And For a long time. Amazing. Yeah. And, they, and they've been cool. Really cool. Well, and I, I, I'm definitely excited by the technology that Rivian's working on, but at the same time, it's like a very, it's kind of like that outdoorsy Patagonia wearing, like there's a clear market for it, 
but it's also really expensive and not really for everyone. And it probably does not have, it doesn't translate to who knows what they do and what's down the road, but it kind of how they position themselves. It's kind of been placed as an alternative on the higher scale to Tesla. Um, instead of having the city EV, they're, they're kind of focused on the outdoor drive in Moab uh, off-road EV. And I, I think it'll be cool to see if they start expanding and they have their own Model 3 moment, whether that's like a Ford Escape style knockoff or something that more people can buy. But yeah, I, I think that that's kind of one of the things I was excited to have you on as well is also to give more of a global perspective on that, uh, what you're seeing from uh, whether it be EVs, but also moves in just the larger industries. Well, I had a, a good conversation with uh, Yvonne from EV Stock Channel on this. And my view was that it seems like a lot of these automakers are going to go bankrupt. And it's only large organizations, they only change when they experience a systemic shock. Right. When that happens, uh, maybe it'll happen during the recession that we're uh, currently in. I think it's official now that we're officially in a recession or a depression. Unfortunately, it's official. (laughs) Maybe maybe this will provide the shock they need where they won't have to go bankrupt in order to adapt. It seems like every country in the world has realized that as a result of this crisis and how clean the air was during the crisis, right. that EVs are the way to go. And on top of that, it's a good way to boost the economy. It's a good opportunity to redirect supply chains to within the country. And that's one interesting thing I've come across while I'm working on these anode videos is the effort and the desire to rehome production and rehome resources is providing a big boost to these companies that I'm looking into. Most anode suppliers are out of China. The ones I'm looking into are actually both based out of Australia. One of them is going to be focused on the North American market. One of them is going to be focused on the European market. And uh, I assume they're two different companies altogether or? Yes. One of them is Tolga Resources, which is focused on natural graphite. And they have a a site in Sweden where they're going to be producing it. The other one is Novonics, which people have heard a lot about. Novonics is focused on synthetic graphite, and they also have a process called DPMG, or dry particle microgranulation. That's probably not worth getting into right now, but what it does is that synthetic anode material is typically very expensive, and that's why a lot of, you know, that's why China excels in it, because they can make a lot of it and cheaply, but they make it in dirty ways. What Novonics DPMG technology allows them to do is produce them in a country that has more developed regulations and um, enables them to compete. way to phrase that, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) Enables them to compete in more expensive markets. Markets where it would be typically more expensive to produce it. The DPMG enables that. So they should still be able to make a profit and make the materials in 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 the U.S. and make them a quality, higher quality material than uh, Japanese or Chinese manufacturers. And that's coming up. Yeah. Th- those will both be featured in this upcoming episode you're working on, on graphene or those will be uh, separate ones. Uh, the graphene video will be the next one. And the next two after that are going to be uh, 
Novonix gets its own video and Tolga gets its own video because each synthetic and natural anode are their own little ecosystem that have their own quirks and eccentricities. And they're both fascinating companies. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm forward to seeing that too. I, I guess if anyone's listening to this, by the time this goes live, which should be early July, 2020, most of those should already be on uh, YouTube if people want to check them out on your channel. Uh, the graphene one will be coming out in about two weeks. I, I'm just finishing up the script now. I thought it was finished a week ago, but then I got feedback from a material scientist and a couple of these CEOs and I had to rewrite portions of it. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it'll take a week to do the voice recording and get that down and then another week to do the visuals. So at about two weeks from now, the graphene will be dropping. Two weeks after that will be Novonix. Two weeks after that will be Tolga. Okay. Well, that, no, I, I'm excited to watch those. And going off of kind of how you position that, that they're focused on different markets. Are there any other kind of innovative ways that the industry or governments you think can accelerate the rollout of this technology or EVs in general with all this kind of research you're doing across uh, across borders and across industries? The thing Elon suggested seems to be the best, which is implement a tax to level the playing field and acknowledge the fact that fossil fuels are basically releasing poison into the air that we breathe. I think it's called negative externalities. Regardless, if it wasn't for that passive subsidies, if, if it wasn't for those passive subsidies that oil companies are getting, electric vehicles would have dominated a long time ago. I don't think there's anything more to add on that point. It's, uh, the, the, I feel like we're already at the tipping point. It just needs uh, a little- well, I think, I, I think what you said was kind of, it's pretty true and might not be getting enough attention or it was kind of like a, just a quick thought that a lot of people had and is now becoming true, which is how people saw there was clear data with COVID and everything going on that air pollution is way down. Everything seems to be getting better if you can and when you can't go outside. So how do we do that at scale once we can kind of bring production and manufacturing back? In my view, the problem is already solved. It's a matter of scaling it up. As the technology is developing, it needs certain little boosts along the way to help it to achieve scale. At the research scale, it needs uh, different types of funding and help. And at the development phase, it needs different types of research and support. And now we're at the commercialization stage, deep into the commercialization stage for EV batteries. The thing that would help the most is either uh, a tax on fossil fuel companies or subsidies to either of those things would level the play playing field to take into account the negative externalities that fossil fuels have, um, basically poisoning our air, causing lots of lung cancer. And if you believe in global warming, global warming. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah I, that, that's, that's a whole nother discussion unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this and I, I just wanna say thank you for your time. For people who wanna learn more about what you're doing in your channel, what, what can people do, Jordan, to uh, find more on your videos and kind of best support your work? 
the best way to support the work is on Patreon. I have, uh, if you just look up the limiting factor on Patreon, that helps a lot. If you want to check out the work, if you're not familiar with it, then the limiting factor uh, on YouTube. There's a lot of little limiting factor channels, but I think mine jumps to the top now. That's, uh, I'm getting going up in the keyword search, word search finally. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely link to it as well on this uh, okay, podcast to make cool. sure we get the word out for you. And then if somebody wants to contact with contact me, interact with me, generally Reddit and Twitter are the best ways to contact me. On Twitter, it's uh, at limiting the. Someone already had the limiting factor. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was the closest thing I could get. So at limiting the at Twitter. And if you watch my videos, it, there's links in the videos to uh, the Reddit page, which I think is forward slash TLF batteries. Great. And, oh, and on those, uh, those Reddit forums, there's, uh, there's been a couple of times where researchers have actually stopped by and answered questions. There's a researcher that stopped by from Jeff Don's lab. He was answering questions. Another guy that used to work uh, as a research assistant in Jeff Don's lab, he stopped by. So there's a lot of good information coming out in that forum, and I'm learning a lot. And that was the whole goal was to lift, to create a rising tide and to lift all boats. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, I can definitely count myself as one of those people who've watched the content and even been in the red and see that there's kind of a constant uh, open dialogue on these technologies and where they're going. So I just want to say thank you again. Uh, we'll definitely be sharing this information. Hopefully we can talk again with you soon, but with that, I think we'll say thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me along, Chase. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Thanks again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.